As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. You're doing a good job. And in case you don't know, my name is Caleb, and I'm your host. If you are new here, let me just say welcome. And if you've been here before, I just want to say welcome back. And regardless if you're new or not, I just want to let you know that I am so glad that you are here. I don't even honestly know where to start. Uh, let me just say this. I have been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. I actually originally reached out to today's guest over a year ago, and because of some scheduling conflicts and then with the pandemic, we were never able to record an episode, but nonetheless, here we are. And I just have to say, I feel like it's right on time, and I am so excited about it. You know, if you hang out long enough around here, then you'll start to realize that I talk a lot about what it looks like to expand our lives consciously. More specifically, what does it look like to become more emotionally aware, more present, and more connected people? Because when we do become more emotionally aware, present, and connected, we win. Our relationships win, our sense of self-worth wins, our self-confidence wins, and most importantly, our emotional wellness and mental health win. And you know, when I think about my journey of becoming more emotionally aware, present, and connected, it's really been a journey of unpacking and healing shame. Shame in so many ways leaves us feeling disconnected from our bodies and therefore disconnected from our lives, physically, emotionally, and relationally. And this is why I am so excited about today's episode, because I don't think that there has been anything that has wreaked more havoc on my emotional wellness and my mental health than shame. And if I was even to get a little more specific with that, I would say sexual shame. You know, for years I have lived with this debilitating ache deep in my bones and in my life that had left me feeling like there was something so intrinsically broken in me. No matter how much I did in life or accomplished, deep down it was never enough. And after years of trying to outperform or outrun this ache, as you can imagine, I was burnt out and left asking, where do I go from here? And now after years of healing and inner work, I can look back and see that there was a direct correlation to the sexual shame that I acquired as a young boy and this inner ache that would go on and almost destroy my life as an adult. So when I say that I'm excited about today's podcast, I really mean it because Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers' work has played such a pivotal role in my healing journey of building resiliency around the shame that I have been carrying for so long, which has undoubtedly helped me reclaim my life. Honestly, I can say so much about this, which would probably end up as an entirely new episode on this podcast. So I'd rather you just hear from Dr. Tina yourself. But before we do that, it's important that you know that Dr. Tina, she is a licensed sex and gender feminist psychotherapist, best-selling author, researcher, former professor, and media personality whose expertise spans sex therapy, spiritual intimacy, parenting, and social justice. Her revolutionary perspectives have been expressed on platforms such as Spirituality and Health, Refinery29, vocal medium and bus magazines along with many podcasts radio news and tv interviews 
Known for exposing the impact of sexual shame on our ability to securely attach to our partners and instruct our children to attach to theirs, Dr. Seller's book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy, has been a global impact. Her latest book, which is out now, Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids, and Heal Your Shame Too, was a new release bestseller in five categories. She speaks throughout the world on how to heal and how to raise shame-free, relationally confident children. And just so you know, on this podcast, we do cover the thoughts around her first book, God, Sex, and the Conservative Church, and then we move into shameless parenting. Okay, so the last thing, and before we dive into this podcast, can I just ask a big favor? If you do find this episode useful in any way, it would mean the world to me if you left a review on my podcast, as well as share this episode with one friend that you might think would benefit from it. That would be so, so helpful. And now that we've got that out of the way, here's what Dr. Tina has to say. How are you today? I am doing really well. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing well too. I'm actually kind of nervous uh, for this this oh. interview. Uh, I told my wife, I was like, oh, I just hope I show up because I find that these conversations around um, sexual shame and religious sexual trauma, as it has been such a big part of my life and my healing journey, yeah. um, the language around it isn't as robust as I would like to have it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a little, I'm, and also I think I'm equally just honored to have you here. You have uh, played, and I know I've said this over email, you've played such a pivotal role in my healing journey as you have in a lot of ways given me the language to better understand not only what had happened to me, but what's going on with me now and connecting those dots and what that has done for me has really given me the space to reclaim my life, to understand right. not only what was happening, but why it's happening and where I can go from here. Nice. So it's just a deep honor to be to be here with you. And so oh, well, I'm care. so grateful to have played that role in your life. That's so great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Good, good. And, and you're I'm doing sure. such great things with it. I have had a chance to listen to your story a bit and you're going on to do great things with it. So that's, I'm thrilled. How wonderful yeah. <laughs> to be able to be a part of that. That was my hope all along. So that's it definitely so is. I know I'm not alone as well. I know uh, I have recommended your book, God, Sex, and the Conservative Church uh, to a lot of people because uh, it's just interesting. And we can, and I would love to, because I know you wrote God, Sex, and the Conservative Church. And then I know the outpouring of responses that you got to that book led you to write your new book, Shameless yeah. Parenting. Yeah. And so for the sake of this conversation, I would love to maybe start with God, Sex, and the Conservative Church, because I know a lot of my audience are probably or were uh, raised in the conservative church or evangelical Christianity inside of the purity movement. Yeah, And maybe they haven't been able to connect the dots that the shame that they internalize throughout the season of life is still directly impacting their adult life. Yep, yep. Right, And so I know for me, um, I have always lived for the longest time with this like debilitating ache. Yeah. This ache that says like either something is wrong with me or something is wrong with life. Mm -hmm. And sitting with that ache has been <laughs> wildly uncomfortable. So like most people, like I would strive and perform and achieve to try to just outperform the ache, but obviously that leads to burnout. And it's taken me years of healing and years of work to directly connect the ache mm -hmm. to the shame that I acquired as a young, as a young boy. And really, I would honestly say probably inside of the church. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if just for the listeners out there, um, can you just kind of explain the, the understanding of God, sex and the conservative church and what's happening with the religious trauma and how that is playing a role in our adult lives? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that so many people probably don't understand how deeply embedded sexual shame is in sort of our, our, our sort of cellular structure, actually. You know, it's just deeply embedded both at a historical level, 
So it's at that epigenetic mm -hmm. level, but because it also starts so very young in our lives. So we have that just deep historical structure, but it, it just is also, um, it starts so very young um, and then it affects us at such a deep level. So it's almost like you think of it at these just profound intersections. Mm. And um, so I'll explain it in those ways, but then I, I'll also finish up. So don't let me forget. I wanna finish it by sort of telling you a little bit what we learned through research. We actually didn't have any good research on sexual shame until um, late 2017, until uh, a dissertation from one of my students got produced in June of 2017, where she did research on sexual shame because we didn't have any. She, she came to me several years before and said, you know, I've been following your work. I really wanted to do my research on religious sexual shame, but I got into the literature and we didn't have any research on sexual shame. So I'm going to have to do it on that in order to build on it, right? And so she did. My book was just being published. So I already had it to the publisher. So it didn't, her work didn't make it in the book. But, you know, we looked at, well, what had the church been doing with, you know, sexuality? And it had been negative all the way back into the fourth century where we developed our sexual ethic. And mm -hmm. that was out of the mind body split. You know, the body was bad, the spirit is good. And so here we are, these beautifully, perfectly created creatures that are bio, psycho, social, spiritual, sexual, integrated souls. And yet we have a sexual ethic that has us bifurcated, separated, as if God didn't do what God did in an intentional way, which of course we are intentionally created, right? Why did the split happen? Was it out of fear and control? No, the split had happened prior. The split had happened in like 300, okay. you know, AD okay. uh, or BC with the, with Aristotle and Plato, oh, okay. they had said, you know, the mind, the mind is eternal. The body's beautiful. You know, they were kind of worshiping the boys and they were their, yes. their, their, their students, you know, they said the, the body is beautiful, but the mind is eternal. Mm. that's when they were in their studies you know that's what they had done so they had done the bifurcation already in the in the patriarchal way that they were running greek roman culture and so that was the uh, the culture was established that way when jesus came along and but the church in its formation it kept that mind body split going and when constantine became the emperor or excuse me, yeah, when he was the emperor, he became a Christian. So he had the power to then appoint the leaders of the early church, right? And so the church has, the church became an empire religion at that point. It became an institution at that point. And so in becoming an empire religion, it kept that mind body split. And it said then, it furthered the mind-body split by saying, well, the spirit is really what's good. And the body, it's only going to pull you away from God with all of its evil desires. <laughs> right? And yeah. so it just, and really what it did when you follow the history really close is it was a way to control the people, you know, because it could make down all of these black and white rules, you know, and when, of course, the men couldn't control themselves, you know, because we're fallible people, it blamed it on the women. And around the 11th century, so this was the fourth century, around the 11th century, when it instituted marriage and instituted celibacy, the men actually left their wives because they had been marrying, they left their wives behind in poverty. Wow. You know, I mean, so but the church has a lot of ugliness in its mm -hmm. history, but that that was, in essence, the Christian sexual ethic that was put into place. And and so we have this long history of that. And then we have, you know, the that sort of the this history of asceticism we have in the 1980s, this return to a kind of ascetic way of thinking when Reagan became uh, the president, and then we started 
pumping in all this money into abstinence education because there was this backlash in, of second wave feminism, AIDS you know, had come on the scene and we had an economic downturn. And really when you look across history, anytime there's an opportunity to take the fear that is a part of culture, that is a part of the populace and use that fear to control mm -hmm you're gonna see something happen. And we've had years of plagues or economic downturns or wars or whatever. And then you'll see something happen where that fear can get used by those in power to whatever they're trying to put, yeah, put forward. And so that happened in the 1980s. And so we saw a real turn of conservatism that happened and really in, in capitalism mm. that happened. And so at the same time that we were pushing abstinence education and this kind of merging of religious right and the moral majority that happened in the 80s, we also saw a removal of, um, of uh, regulations that we had in the Federal Communication Commission. So we removed the, uh, the, uh, the kind of um, protection that we had on our media to protect the population uh -huh. from violence against women. And so now all of a sudden we had an influx of violence against women in our media, on our movies, in uh, uh, video games, which were brand new on the scene, in, in uh, uh, music, music videos. And then we had the internet come on board, right? And then after that, we had social media 10 years later. So, so really we had a huge capitalistic push and we had regulations removed in the banks. And so we had this very interesting thing happening at culture at the same time. We had a, it looked like we were doing family values, but mm -hmm. really what we were doing was protecting corporations. And we had this real misogynistic thing happening. So the reason this is important is because we were removing sex education as education, as real knowledge from our schools, we were inputting abstinence education, which was actually 80% medically inaccurate. We were scaring the population saying, don't use contraception because it'll actually scare you. I mean, it'll actually kill you. Mm -hmm. And then we were putting in a bunch of misogynistic information into the media. That's what was educating our kids. Wow. And this began in 1980. So now we're 40 years later and we have a rape culture mm. happening. And we kind of wonder why we've seen an increase in violence against women that's been occurring and why we have so much ignorance. We have so much violence against women. And yet I think there is a lot of that violence that's being perpetrated by men and many of those men's men don't even know they're crossing a line so for example you're at a frat party you've got people who are drinking not all of those men that are being exploitive know they're being exploitive like their behavior is just justified and normal Right. They don't, they don't know. Nobody, they've been learning what they've been learning through video games, through pornography, right? They're, they're in the old, the boys club, right? And they're not, they haven't learned to listen inside and be like, well, do you know how to check consent? Yeah. Do you know how to, right? Because I have talked to dads now who have young daughters who will say to me, you know, somewhere inside me, I knew what was happening behind that door shouldn't have been happening, but I didn't do anything about it. And it mortifies me now, do you know? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, well, we set you up for that too. I'm not saying you're completely off the hook, but I'm saying we never provided you any sex education. We never helped you learn where the lines were. We never engaged you in, con in conversation about critical thinking about how you need to treat people. And we justified it. Because right? it, we shifted from this conscious navigation of sexual or sex education to now fear-based programs of don't do this, otherwise this is going to happen. Right, exactly. And then we, turn, we basically turned them over the wolves. We said, your education is going to be underground. 
and it's going to be taught by the media. Yeah. Right. And then what we are going to give you is going to be scary, but on one level, you're going to know that's not true. Mm. Right. And you're going to be filled with so much shame and feel so badly about yourself. Mm. Right. You're going to feel like crap. Yeah. And so then you're going to be out doing things that are going to make you feel more like crap. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And then it's going to affirm like, like, uh, like self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm a really bad dude. Right. Or I'm a bad girl, bad woman, you know, and this is what we're doing to people. I think this is what we're doing to people from the get go, as opposed to, we know, we know how to do it better. Yeah. We have countries out there have been doing it better since the forties, you know? And so, so this is a whole, this is another layer that I'm talking about right here. Another layer. It's good because it puts it all into, puts it all into context. It's like, okay, this is where we started. So this is great. Right. And then another, another layer is you begin getting sexual shame downloaded into you as early as a year old. Because you're finding your body, you know, your hand becomes something that you can actually control by six, seven months old. By the time you're 10 months old, you have found your genitals, Mm -hmm. boy or girl, you found your genitals when you're getting your diaper changed or you're in the bathtub and you like that, that that feels wonderful, right? And unless you have a parent that is comfortable with that. And in my research and going around and talking to people for years and years, 90 to 95% of families are silent or silent and shaming around sexuality. So that parent is not comfortable, right? So they're either freaked out or they're saying, don't yucky, or they're hitting their hand away or something that that child, even though they don't have language yet, if their implicit memory and their right brain is logging, mm-hmm. this is bad. I'm bad. Can I just I tell you? It. Yeah. Can I just tell you that as I was in this, so sorry to cut you off there, but no, no. as I'm sitting with my therapist and doing some really kind of trauma informed therapy, somatic <laughs> healing, we do like this, like, let's go back to this earliest memory of feeling what you're feeling now, just get in your heart space. Let's just talk it through. And I got back until I think I was like two or three years old and I put my hands down my pants and immediately it was slapped and I was said, good boys don't touch themselves there. And let me tell you, when I learned how to reparent that little boy, when I learned how to show that little boy compassion and reinforce that pleasure is good, it's from God, like nothing that you did was wrong in that moment. Can I just say that that debilitating ache has began to dissolve Yes. As a result of going back and saying, hey, you're not a bad boy, because that was this, that was the ache that something was wrong in me, then then was reinforced through this behavior of saying, like, why am I doing this? I hate myself. Do more. Why am I doing this? I hate myself. Do more. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just that's such a tender story, Caleb, because like you're this like sweet tender boy like when you care is your wife right right yes, yes. yeah so like when you guys have kids this is going to come back for you tenfold like if you guys have kids because you will see how little and tender yeah you were literally and the thing is is that when you do that once you don't just do it once you do it every day mm-hmm you know, and the fact that you get in trouble, you don't stop at that age. You do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And you don't stop until you're five or so when you finally start realizing that you're getting in trouble. It takes a while because you actually are really excited about this. And you actually, because we are wired for connection and pleasure, connection and pleasure. So we want to share this with our caregiver. And so Every time you get excited and every time you want, you like, look at your caregiver, like, see what I found, you know, and every time they, that they see you, they get mad Yeah. and you still don't log that you shouldn't do that. So like it happened hundreds of times. Right. And what we understand about trauma now, even though we don't log it, that is actually being stored in our body. It is being stored in our bodies. It Mm. is, it is. And, 
that's why it is so big and it's stored on all five of our senses because mm. that's where we store it. You know, like we are so remarkably made, mm. you know, that it's that like complete joy, you know, that biopsychosocial spiritual, but it also trauma is that way then too, right? Yep. Which again is why this is so important. Like if we understand this then about children, then as they're unfolding and they find their genitals, we can be like, yep, isn't that great? Man. That's your penis. It's the most, another wonderful part of your body. Now let's move your hand and finish diapering you and, yeah. and go on your way. And again, it'll happen a hundred times. What I'm thinking, I keep thinking about, you know, that old, that Brene Brown's quote that says something like, show me a woman who can sit in the space of a man who comes undone and I'll show you a, a woman who's done the work. Yeah. Right. That has really been my relationship with Kara as I have pursued my own personal growth. She's created this emotional safety for me and she's been able to do that because she's done the work. And just thinking about like, show me a parent yeah. who sit in the midst of their young boy or girl, toddler or whatever, who are touching themselves naturally and being able to be like, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, let's finish. And that's I'll show right. you a parent who's done sexual shame work. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And you know what? This is what's so cool. I can just tell you that when you've done the work, and then you raise your child that way, then they won't have work to do. Man. And it changes, it changes in one generation. Like you'll do the work and that'll be work, but your child won't have work to do. So, and this is what's super fun. Like, so I had the good fortune of growing up in a Swedish immigrant home. So I didn't have a lot of uh, sexuality work to do. Um, and so then my kids got that as well. They got the good fortune of that. But the other day, so I have two grandchildren now. I have a three and a half year old and a six month old and my granddaughter, Quincy. So I was talking to my son and, uh, and he was saying, he says, oh, mom, he says the other day, he says, Quincy's sitting on the couch and uh, she had a blanket over her and he goes, and I looked over at her and her hands were under the blanket and her eyes were rolling back. <laughs> Oh, yep, she's right on time. <laughs> we giggle and laugh about it, but that was just what's so nice mm. is that you, it's just like he knows what's age appropriate. Right. He grew up with it. And there's shame is nowhere to be found, uh, you know? Can we go it's back to that like situation? Anything. Can we go back <laughs> to that situation real quick? And yeah. if that was happening for somebody that's listening, and maybe their natural response is to be like, oh my God, no, because they're afraid that if they're learning self-pleasure at this age, they're just going to run off to be this promiscuous, blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, right? And so they have that natural fear. Yeah. And if we want to, and I still want to go back to um, the role of the church and stuff, I'm just for this yeah. sake of this conversation. If they have that natural fear and they want to learn how to parent differently, how would you suggest that they handle that situation? Right. So it's definitely, it's in the book. But yep. so what, what you, you do, so at three, um, they're not in diapers anymore. So the diaper's not there as a block. Yeah. So they're not in diapers anymore. And so um, they're right at an age where you're starting the conversation of, um, you know, they found, they found their vulva, they found their clitoris, however you want to start talking about it. So I'm usually about helping them name their whole body, right? And so um, with girls, they've got different parts, right? It's not all starts straight out in front of like the boys. And so I'm usually helping them name. And then you can be like, it really depends on the family, but somewhere but right around four, they are old enough to start getting that. We can touch ourselves in private parts of the house. Mm. And, um, and that we don't touch our, we, we don't pleasure ourselves or touch ourselves outside the house, or usually we go into the bedroom or our bathroom. And that is the same for the parents, that the parents use the bedroom or the bathroom too. And that is just because it's the private parts of our body. And, and it's this, at the same time, we're also teaching them other social kinds of things. Like we use forks and knives and we use Kleenex when we're picking our nose and we don't keep our finger up our nose. We're teaching them other kinds of social cues too. It's right along the same thing. 
And you won't just say it once, you're gonna say it many, many times yeah. because they're not gonna remember. So right around three, um, you're starting that kind of thing. They're not gonna always remember. I wouldn't make it a big deal. If mm -hmm. they're covering themselves up, that's good. Oh, I see you're covering yourself up. That's good. That's another way to create privacy. That's a good thing. Do you wanna go into your room and do that? And they'll probably say, no, I'll just as soon sit out here. Okay, but let's remember that we keep it private, you know, and then when they're done, why don't we go wash our hands? You know, that kind of thing. And the reason that you wash your hands too is because waste comes out of the anus. Yeah. Right. So again, you're just teaching them about their body. What you want to try not to do. Oh, I, hit, I must have hit my thing Sorry about that. Um, what you want to try not to do is to is to sexualize it. Mm. Okay. This is about pleasure. And um, and it's about comfort. So I try to help parents, and I talk about this in the book. This is really a comfort behavior that they're doing. And it's kind of like, if you want to think about it, like the soft corner of their blanket or the inside of their bunny's ear, it's something that they do for comfort. Okay. And um, that is really the best way to think about it. And in many ways, masturbation is that too. Yeah. It's something that we do for comfort. Once we start to be able to orgasm, that big download of chemicals that we get really kind of drops our blood pressure. It really helps with anxiety. You know, it also is a comfort mechanism, right? right? Um, so we just have so much shame that's built up over all these years about well, that just must be some, I don't know, weird sexual thing. Well, actually a lot of people use it for calming themselves down and, yeah. you know, just. It's and, interesting. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. So, no, no, go ahead. It's just when we look at adults or our own adult life and we're waking up feeling wildly disconnected from our life, disconnected from our body, we're unfulfilled. We have no passion. We have no clear direction. Never do we ever really stop and ask, like, where was this separation to begin with? Like, what had happened in my life? Yeah. And you know, I still, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have a, a woman in my life, a, a wife, a partner, a soulmate that can hold space and we can have hard conversations. Yeah. Because I can still feel shame around this idea of pleasure. Like I even that's going back to growing up in the church. And I remember the first time masturbating and then immediately after climax being like, oh, my God, God, I'll never do that again. I hope you don't take away your will for my life. Oh. Right. Because I was taught to believe that there is something fun, like the body sexual desires is going to lead you to a life of sin. It's going to lead you a life um clear path to hell <laughs> but yeah. yet at the same time as you're growing up you have these natural urges and desires and your sexuality is forming and you're having thoughts that are all natural but going back to what you have said there was no space to talk about it that's right there was no space to talk so what did we do i i internalized it and in a lot of ways, just now as 36 years old in the confines of a emotionally safe partnership, yeah. am I able to stop pretending? And right. what that's done with rebuilding the sense of connection to my body and being able, therefore, to live more presently, which has profoundly changed my life in the most unimaginable ways. This is when I've realized that, holy hell, like, Everything I've been looking for my entire life has been with me this entire time. It's just been buried behind mounds of sexual shame. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Right. Which, which is just throws my soul to no end that that's what you're discovering and makes me so profoundly sad that you didn't know that all along, which is what we want, right? Yeah. This is what we want, want for your babies and for everybody else's babies to know from the get-go. Because like when you were developing, when you were going from 13 to 15, which I have this in the book too, because I've been teaching this stuff for right. ever and ever, right? Um, your body was being turned from a bicycle to a rocket ship, <laughs> right? 20 times the amount of testosterone was getting produced in your body from what it was 
from fifth and sixth grade. And nobody was there to tell you that. Nobody was there to tell you, you got a, you got a rocket engine that's mm. being turned on inside your body. And you absolutely are going, your masturbatory um, behaviors are going to shift and change. Your body is going to start feeling different on the inside as you are growing. And this is normal because you're actually being shifted and changed. You're being changed to reproduce. Now, our culture has changed. You're no longer going to be marrying at 15 yeah. and producing children. Our brain, however, has not changed and thus our bodies have not changed. And so we have to figure out how you're going to be in relationship to sexuality and this arousal cycle of yours, because you're not going to probably marry until sometime in your thirties. So let's talk about how you're going to be in relationship to this drive to move through your arousal cycle, mm. as well as your desire to be into in intimacy right? Let's talk about these things because those are different kinds of drives. And we live in a misogynistic culture mm. that's got some toxicity involved in it. And that doesn't honor your heart because your heart is tender and kind, right? And so like you needed to be engaged in very different conversations that helped you understand you yeah. and how to navigate those 20 years, right? So that you could grow into you the you that you were created to be and to be like thoughtful about that because you knew some things about you. It's like your conversation that you had with JC mm. about what kids know. Kids know so much when they're engaged to think about what they know about themselves. Mm. But so few people actually engage them to think about those knowledges that they have but when they are engaged in it, they come up with so much wisdom because it's there in them, right? And they Excellent. know some things about what they want for themselves. You know, Peggy Ornstein, I don't know if you've read any of her books, but she's a, she's a New York Times columnist and she wrote a book called Girls and Sex and another one called Boys and Sex. And they came from interviewing, like I think she interviewed for the girls book, 80 girls, 15 to 22. And the other one, the boys book, I think she interviewed 120 boys same age range around what's it like to grow up right now in today's culture mm. around sexuality, dating, friendship. What's it really like? And she has this, like JC and you, and you have this profound way to really get kids to talk about what it's really like. Mm. And they are remarkable books. And I tell parents all the time, please, and it's in the book, in the book I wrote, please read these books so that you really know what it's like for kids out there. Cause it's not entirely like what it used to no. be. Like it's really a war zone for them. Absolutely. It's a completely different space. And the hard part, what breaks my heart so many times is I often like a lot of my keynotes that when I'm spending time with students or if I'm working with um, like student leaderships to help shape and shift school culture, it's really like, I'm just saying I'm a six foot two ex NFL linebacker with a 19 inch neck permission slip. <laughs> I'm just a giant permission slip to talk about what's really going on in your life. And we really understand like the importance of having emotional safety so that I can open up and talk about, but it never fails that it's like, I've got nobody in my life to be, to feel that safe. And it's just, it's, it breaks my heart to know that the parents, not judging, being critical or anything like that, the parents probably want the best, for, nine times out of 10, want nothing but the best for their child, right? But you're using the fear-driven tactics to try to shape and mold their child into being a perfect child or the child who they think they should be, and not just yeah. giving them that emotional, that space to actually be who they're called to be. Right. And a lot of times it happens because we haven't done the work ourselves. And I see this playing out with sexual shame. Yes. And I'm telling you, like, if there's anything, I'm so excited to find your book and to find your work. And I'm so excited to have these conversations because when I look at a macro perspective of my life, and I've kind of talked about this, but the shame-driven narratives is what almost destroyed my life. Yes. And a lot of that was the sexual shame. And I know, um, maybe I, 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 tell me if this is wrong, if I'm misquoting you here, though, because I think maybe 
going back a little bit to the conservative church, because I know a lot of people was raised in the conservative church mm -hmm. and still kind of adhere to the purity movement, sex, mm -hmm. abstinence and everything. Mm -hmm. did, was there somewhere in the book or in my, did I read this somewhere else or am I totally making this up that religious sexual trauma can create the same symptoms of shame as being sexually abused? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because I was, I remember when I was really doing this work deep in this work a couple of years ago, I was ha like, I couldn't stop thinking like, oh my God, like, was I sexually abused? And did I just block this out from a trauma response, self-protection? Like, did I just block it out? I felt it in my bones. Like it was like an abuse, like I was sexually abused. And I talked to so many adults in my life and they're like, no, it never happened. I'm like, God, this really is the damaging effects of religious sexual trauma. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, think about it pragmatically. You and, and it'll, it'll make sense too, as you read the book, because kids' sexuality unfolds, if, it's, if, you're, if they're left alone and they're in a safe environment, it's gonna unfold naturally and slowly. And they have a very natural curiosity and, and it, it ought to, right? Yeah. Well, what happens is that if you've got somebody who is, constantly in there telling you that who you are and how you are isn't okay and is basically damaging it mm -hmm. as it's unfolding and then on top of that is telling you that the god of the universe mm -hmm. can't approve that can't does not see that as good and, and I always say, the more tender you are, the more sensitive you are, and the more earnest you are as a person, the deeper your wound is. Yeah. And I would see it all the time in my students and clients, you know? And they would be the ones with the deepest uh, trauma. Would they, from your experience, would they basically go to the other end of the spectrum and out of that pain, like for me, as a deeply sensitive person, and even as a highly sensitive adult, the way that I responded to that pain was complete rage. Mm -hmm. I like rage now had become my self-protection to keep me from ever being exposed because I was so wildly afraid that if you saw me, you would see just how broken I really am. And so I went from this very soft, tender hearted kid mm -hmm. that wanted nothing but to do good in the world to this mm -hmm. ego driven, rage filled, angry lunatic that did anything he could to protect himself at all costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People respond in many different ways. I mean, some of them go there, some of them absolutely retreat and, and yeah. put a, a barrier between them and everyone else. You know, some people dive in so much that they just dissolve into other people, you know, and just are like uh, destructive, you know, just incredibly destructive behavior, just lose themselves in just all kinds of destructive behavior. And, and sometimes it's in a way to say, I can be, I can be bigger than, than everything that happened to me. I can do it worse than everything that happened to me because I'm now in charge of it. Mm. You know, so there's all kinds, but, they, but in many ways they are extreme. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and it's, it is a defense, but, but they're not healing in it. Right. They're not, they're lost in it, you know? Disconnected. So, yeah. I, it's interesting too. It's like the more I have healed and I, and I'm, I'm being raised let's say as this young boy in evangelical church to think that God out here, body is bad. I created this mind, body, spirit, body disconnection. And I live greatly disconnected in my life. And that created an onslaught of mental health challenges and emotional behavior challenges and all of these different challenges that went on to almost in my life. Mm -hmm. And then as I started this healing journey, the greatest demonstration of the revelation of love I have ever experienced, the heaven on earth, the closest to heaven on earth I've ever experienced in my life has happened only in moments when I have dissolved the disconnection of spirit and body yeah. and learned how to be back in my body. Yeah. I can think of two times where I went into this guided meditation and breath work and I was in my body. And honestly, Dr. Tina, I, I felt like I was living, and this is the only way I could describe it. I felt like I was living 
in the state of an orgasm for almost four straight days. Wow. It was just like this all encompassing, like euphoric, like, oh my God, I am so wildly connected. This is what heaven on earth feels like. It's the dissolve of the separation and I become one. And in me becoming one, I'm present and in being present, I'm part of all. It's just like, whoa. And so it's just interesting to me that we do hold the key. Yes. We don't have to wait for this heaven <laughs> out there. And I'm not making light of that or, or making no, no, no. Mind, but it's just like, we hold the key to the yeah. prison that we're sitting in. That you are so right. You are so right. Yeah. We, uh, at the Institute that I run, um, we run courses that train uh therapists and doctors and clergy and whatnot in sexual health and stuff because they don't get that in schools and stuff and and we did that for various reasons partly because you need that training which is an understatement but another reason that we did it is because i learned this profound thing very late in my career and that is we started running and and i did it in the middle of writing the first book and i the first rendition of my first book was just too academic. I threw it out to a bunch of my colleagues and they're like, well, were you trying to write an academic book? And I'm like, no. They're like, well, you did. (laughs) And so I put it up on the shelf and I started running couples retreats. Okay. And, um, and the retreats have a lot of stuff in it, but you know, it has stuff about teaching you like what you didn't get, what you should have gotten, you know, and, and, and uh, gender stuff and family of origin stuff and you know just important stuff. But the one thing that it has is each afternoon, it has what we, what we call passion practices, which is um, we take, and it's for straight couples. So we, we take, and that's because I always say, it's not because <laughs> we don't like working with other couples, yeah. it's because the people having the worst sex on the planet are straight couples in the United wow. States are straight couples wow. by okay. far. And it's because of the church. The church has just messed up straight people so much. Um, So we take intercourse off the table Mm. and we teach people how to make love Mm. without penis and vagina sex. And we do giver and receiver exercises. And what those passion practices taught me was how healing and transformative sacred touch can be Mm. because it is the space that when you show up to each other that vulnerably it is the intersection of body mind soul and spirit Mm. and we have couples the only criteria to go is you have to want your relationship there has to be no affair and no physical abuse but that's it. So we've had tons of couples that is are ice cold. They haven't touched each other in a decade. Like, like it's just ice between them. And we have a 95% success rate. Wow. After that first passion practice, it just melts years of just so much rage and anger between them. And there is, but it takes so much vulnerability to show mm. up to each other. But the thing is, they know everybody else's. There's like eight or 10 couples and they know everybody else is going to do this stuff too. And so, but there is just something powerful when you show up with intention, attention, mind, eyes, breath, willing Mm. to see what will happen when you show up in the way we ask you to show up to each other. And it's, it's just one person at a time, one person at a time. Can you give me an example of a passion practice? So the first one, well, the first night they just wash each other's feet. Mm. That's it. Beautiful. The, the second day he, it's just all about her from beginning to end for an hour and a half. It's just about her. He's, he's closed from the bottom down from the waist down. He's closed and we give him total instructions on what to do. And he, they, we have a men and a women's group for an hour and a half after lunch. And so he's given a ton of instruction and she knows what's going to happen. Like we tell her what's going to happen. And we tell her your job is to not direct him, 
but mm-hmm. to open your heart to him and to understand how scared he is mm-hmm. and how much he loves you. That's your job is to open your heart to him and to understand he is scared to death because he's, he loves you and he's afraid of failing. Mm. It's like, and he's never <laughs> loved you and touched you this way before. Mm. Like this scares him. So your job is to open your heart. He is scared to death, but we have given him a mind by blow, by blow, by blow, by blow on what to do. And, and then what he says to us after is if I had any idea making love could look like this porn would have never held a candle for me Wow! because I've never had her open her heart to me like that before. Like it changes lives. But what made me think of it as you were talking is they talk about that melding. Yeah. And it blows his mind because it didn't have anything to do with him. And he's never made love that way before. And she often has never been made loved to in a way that didn't have anything to do with him. Oh my gosh. Because she's never let it happen that way. She's always been taught that if he doesn't finish, mm-hmm. it's not real. Right? And Absolutely. he's like, I'll do it that way all the time if I can get her that, <laughs> if I can get her heart that way. So it's like, it's a game changer. Wow. It's a game changer. A game changer. That's absolutely yeah. beautiful. That like just hearing about that and knowing that that work is happening is just incredible. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. And this is yeah. just over the top good. I've been so blessed by our conversation. But for yeah. somebody I that- I have to read you that definition of uh, sexual shame one of these moments too. Yes, please. You can start it with this. But one, can you read the definition of sexual shame? And then two, as a parent listening to this, and they are beginning to maybe reflect on their own lives, or maybe they already have, and they know that they have sexual shame narratives that are driving their life. What can they begin to do to rewrite those narratives or build resiliency around that shame? And then the second half of that question, I can repeat it later, um, is how can we now as adults who are building resiliency around our own sexual shame, how can we become maybe the go-to, I don't know if this is the right word, but like sex coach for your children? Yes. Yeah. So I hope, I hope this doesn't sound, I don't want this to sound like I'm just pitching the book because that's not no, please. what I'm trying to do at all. I'm about all. to be your greatest spokesperson. Well, <laughs> but it's the only way I know, but to build your own resiliency, I think you first have to walk through your own childhood, yeah. right? And see, ask yourself, what didn't I get? Mm. What didn't I get that I'm, and what did I get? Yeah. Right. And so the only place I know for you to do that right now, um, that asks you those shame questions is my book. I don't know of any other place where somebody asks those shame questions that has the developmental steps there. And so that's, that's why I did it. I mean, that's just to be clear, you're talking about uh, shameless, the shameless book, the yeah. shameless book. Yeah. Because it, it says birth to two mm-hmm. here's, here's the tasks that a kid emotionally does behaviorally does and sexually does. And then here are the shame triggers that most parents feel you're going to know when you read it, how that feels in your body. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to be like, Oh, no big deal. And if it, you feel like no big deal, then your parents did a great job with you. If you feel like, mm-hmm. uh, like <laughs> I would feel really weird if my kid grabbed their genitals or whatever, yes. then you're going to know somebody felt weird with you. And then there's going to be follow-up questions right there. And you can just grab a journal and start I love that. wondering, like you can imagine your parents what do you think was it like for you? And if anybody wants, I have a list of more questions and I'd be happy to oh gosh, send yeah. them to anybody. They just, just DM me and say, hey, send me your sexuality questions. Cause I have questions I used to ask my students to, to ask themselves when, you know, like they were growing up and I'm happy to share those. Please, yes. Um, yeah. Um, and work, just work yourself through your own sort of family of origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beginning of shifting your own legacy, right? 
Um, and then as far as then helping your own kids, that's exactly what the book does. It says, here's what they're going to do each step. And then if you can get ahead of the game, like if you've got a three-year-old, go through what they are going to be doing, you know, do in the two to four range, but then look ahead to the four to six range, what's coming down the pipe. Get those, I, I recommend the top books and websites for this age, but then go ahead and get the next section too and start reading ahead. If you get ahead of the game, you start reading ahead. If you've got partners, if you've got friends that you can create a book group with, the more you read this stuff and get the language in your head, speak it out loud, the more comfortable you get, the easier it'll be. And really the more fun you're actually gonna have with your kids. The more you're gonna be able to laugh at their antics and their giggles, the things they do, you know, the more you're going to be able to see things as normal and typical and cute, as opposed to freaking out about it. And really kids do delightful, silly things, but when you don't know that they're normal or typical, yeah. that's when we spend a lot of time being anxious, right? And ideally we want to spend less time being anxious and more time enjoying them. Yeah. You know, just when we're not, when we're anxious, we're not present either. <laughs> right. We're not. Yeah. And really, honestly, we, we spend so much time moving so fast that we're spending more time in anxiety because we don't have a lot of information coming in. That's just telling us this is typical. This is typical. This is typical. And if we just knew what was typical, we would be enjoying our children. Absolutely. More. It takes away the unknown or the fear. Yeah. I love that. And now is I got the, the the privilege of reading the I think the digital the digital copy. Um is your book out now or when does it's it It's out come? now. Okay. Yeah, it's out now. It's got places to take notes in it. Awesome. Stuff. Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Tina, thank you so much. Do you have any sort of uh do you have any courses out? Do you have anything that uh, you're currently working on outside of the book that Yeah. Uh, people can even dive into more of your work. Right. So if my website, which is just my name, tinashermersellers.com, we're going to be starting a parenting community wow. where you can become a part of that. And I'm going to be continuing to write blogs. All the blogs will be given um, like an age range. And so they'll, they'll drop into, I mean, they'll, they'll be on a feed, but they'll also drop into a particular age range. So you'll always be able to get more and more information on whatever ages you're interested in or special topics that you're interested in. Once a month, I'm going to do a live Q and A. Awesome. So if people, there's something that they're not seeing that's in the book or not in the live feed. Um, you can always send me a question and I'll try to get to that. We're doing that because we recognize that culture is shifting and changing a lot and that parents are facing a lot. And on uh, Instagram, sometimes sexual issues are shadow banned. And we just wanted a safe place for people to come where they can talk about whatever might be arising that feels scary to them and that there's a, you know, an expert or whatever that they can talk to. And I just want to be able to land one place and be able to field people's questions and Put up webinars there's things that people want stuff on or whatever so that's that's we're gonna get that that'll probably be launched in the you can go there now there's just not a ton there yet but um in a month it'll it'll get more active awesome i'll make sure to have all that linked um to the description of this podcast and along with your instagram and your website and everything else so right. uh sincerely thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the You're time so to be here welcome absolutely yes yeah. awesome Anytime. thank you
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 